0: Grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Now, what we've been doing on Sunday nights is actually looking at one of our readings from Thursday or Friday, because we're looking at Wednesday's reading on Wednesday nights. But because we have spent quite a bit of time in the life of David, and Lord willing, uh, we will finish that story this year. Maybe sometime in the summer we'll, we'll start going back to, to Samuel. So, I don't want to repeat a lot of that because you, you can get online, and you can just access all that information that we have. We've gone through every verse uh, starting in chapter 15 or 16, rather, and going all the way through. So, I thought we'd actually go, I think this is from Tuesday's reading, um, and just look at one chapter of it. It's 1 Samuel 8. So, let's read the chapter, and we'll see what the Lord has say. So, let's, if you will, stand with me. Reverence of God's Word, we will right in. The writer of first Samuel writes under, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes for justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now point for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the king displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, and from the day I brought them out from the land of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, So they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words the Lord said to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, this will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to officers and to his servants. He will take the male servants, female servants, and the best of your young men and your donkeys, and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out, Because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, the Lord will not answer you in that day. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Let's go over in prayer. Our Father, every time we open up our, our, our Bibles together, we ask that you would transform us and move us. And we ask that you would do that now. Every part of our being may be opened and used by the Spirit. And may we receive it, uh, your word as intended. And may we become more like you. May I decrease so that you can increase. In and so we pray. Amen. See you. I have a really good idea for tonight. You, you tell me if this is a great idea. I think it's brilliant. I think we should talk about both religion and politics tonight. How does that sound? What is the worst that could happen? I, I mean, I've gotten away with UK jokes for the last seven plus years, so I should be fine. I mean, that's the most controversial thing, Kentucky, Louisville. So you know, uh, religion and politics are, are two things we don't fight about as a country. I heard I heard someone, uh, this comedian or someone, say the old saying is is that at family gatherings, don't talk religion and politics. And of course, we need to update that. Just don't talk religion, because that's the only thing we talk about these days is politics, because everything has been politicized. Well, this is of course a text about religion. It is a text about politics, and as such, it has a lot to say uh, to us. I want us to, for sake of time, jump right into the text. Let's first of all look at the crisis in verses 1 to 3. And the crisis is immediately given to us in in verse 1. When Samuel became owed, he made his sons judges over Israel. And the problem is they were not good godly leaders or good godly men. Now, remember what we said, particularly the story of Samson. Samson is the last of the judges in the book of Judges. Samuel is considered the last of the judges in general. Uh, Of course, his sons served briefly in Beersheba, uh, Joe and and, and Abijah. Um, But one of the things that we have seen from the beginning of Judges and our readings through is that they get progressively worse. So you come to the story of Samson and you're just exhausted from all this. And then the book of Judges ends not with a judge ruling over Israel, but with Israel at war with itself. And so then we read the story of Samuel's birth, which reminds us of the story of Samson. So we think it could go either way, could go bad like Samson, could go good like Isaac and Jacob. Um, and, and it is good. The problem is his sons are unrighteous. And this, of course, is a pattern um, in, in First and 2 Samuel, right? Eli was a good priest, but his sons were ungodly. Samuel was a good prophet and judge, but his sons were wicked. David was a good king, but his sons rebelled against him, and they were corrupt. Now, however, Samuel is reaching retirement, and his sons have proven to be incompetent. A couple things to note here. First of all, the role of the judges was not hereditary. This should really stick out to us. And some see here a type of nepotism, and they may be on to something, Uh, Samuel has appointed his sons to be judges, but the question is, has God appointed his sons as judges? That's a problem. Furthermore, Israel, unlike Americans today, uh, the ancient people have very long memories. In fact, you go to the Middle East right now, in Eastern Europe now, they have very long uh, memories. We forget what happened last week and move on. Uh, They remember what happened a thousand years ago and are still dealing with it. And so the Israelites realized, look, for the last several generations, we've had one corrupt judge, one incompetent judge after another. It is time for this experiment to end. And to a certain extent, I think we can be sympathetic to the Jewish people. The uh, 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 change is in order, and Samuel isn't going to live forever. Something needs to be done. And that leads, of course, to the council, verses 4 to 18. So Samuel, as he approaches his retirement party the elders of Israel form a council to confront him. Notice the language here in verse five, uh, where, where they say, um, behold, you are old. Well, that's a, that's a way to start a conversation, right? Uh, you are old. Oh, I didn't notice. You know, I hurt myself sleeping last night. Now that you tell me I'm old, I get it, right? You know, <laughs> behold, you are old. Um, But notice that what they want is for him to appoint a king to judge us like the nation. It's it's interesting language, isn't it? Appoint a king to be judge rather than a judge to be a judge. A judge would be more of a a governor type rather than a king with absolute power. A governor would be more limited in scope and, and power. They still want a judge, but they want a judge to look a certain way. And this, of course, is tied to the nations, so they want a judge with greater authority and power, which mirrors their neighbors. Now, to be clear, this request for a king was not bad in of itself. In fact, we could say, long term, this is where Israel was headed. Isn't this what the Bible tells us? You can go look in, the, in Genesis. What does God tell Abraham and, his, and, and the other patriarchs? I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings will come to you. So, so we're looking for kings, Same thing in 35, God said to you, a nation, a company of nations will come for you, and kings will come from your own body. Likewise, the prophecy that Jacob gives to Judah is that from the line of Judah will come a king. So this isn't new. In fact, you can turn to Deuteronomy 17. We won't do that for the sake of time. Verses 14 to 20 is in the law, Moses tells Israel what a godly, good Jewish king should look like. So clearly it was, it was in, in the cards. The problem is they're wanting a king on their timeline and not theirs. In fact, we could probably add they desire a king more than they desire the Lord. It really is the big issue here. The judges have been appointed by God and their failure to fulfill their calling was not God's fault, but their own. And the society's acceptance of libertarian values is certainly part to blame. Now, however, they want to appoint their own king. Their concern is not God's will, but their own, their wisdom above God. Notice the language in verse 7 here. The Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. Now, that should just shock you. Because in the Bible, whenever you listen to the voice of someone that isn't named God, bad things happen. we've looked at these in our study of Genesis, so I don't want to spend forever. This is Adam's problem. You listen to the voice of your wife. This is a layman's problem. Remember, he says, listen to my voice, obey my voice. Uh, Later, Abram, you remember, uh, with the story of Hagar, he listened to the voice of his wife. The parallels between the temptation of Hagar and uh, the the, the Eden's narrative are purposely symmetrical. Um, um, And we can also even look in uh, chapter 22, God praises Abraham. Uh, Remember after he he offered his son Isaac uh, to to the Lord, remember God says, he praises him because you listened to my voice. So now, what is God saying? Not listen to my voice. They have forsaken my voice. I want you to listen to their voice. Do what it is that they have asked you to do. This, of course, would have confused Samuel. Why would an all-wise God tolerate such defiance? I've got two things worth worth noting here. First of all, verses 8 and 9 tells us they want this because that is consistent with their character. Despite all that God has done for them, redeemed them out of slavery, conquered their enemies, planted them in the promised land and delivered them time and again, they constantly whine and rebel. Notice the language starting in verse 8. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day forsaken me, serving other gods, so they're going to do to you too. So obey their voice. This is consistent with their... Now you should have seen this coming. They are a discontented people. They are an idolatrous people. They are a foolish people. This may come to no surprise to you if you've been keeping up with the times. Foolish people do and want foolish things. And here you have foolish people who have chosen idolatry over the proper worship of the Lord, His book of Judges makes very clear. So no wonder they want foolish things. And no wonder they want monarchy over God's law. I love that language of verse 8. So they are also doing to you. It's an interesting comment. The rebellion against God is demonstrating the rebellion and ingratitude of Samuel. Who's led them well? How we think of God and who and what we worship will either bless or it will curse other people. Samuel, the servant of God, is rejected because the people have rejected God. It's as simple as that. Don't take it to heart, Samuel. They've been doing it to me for generations. There's another reason why the people of Israel want to do this. And that is because they are fools. And this is really what you're getting, probably the the part of the story that people remember the most, at least it sticks out to me, is that Samuel tells them exactly what life is going to be like under a monarchy. I mean, think about it. All you have to do is look at all the other nations. And how is it you can look at all the other nations at this time and say, yeah, yeah. That's what I want, right? It's exactly what I want. Give me a big dose of fats. And it's exactly what they're doing. And we all know that even though government is sometimes an obese patient on life support, it sees itself as skinny and beautiful. No one believes in government more than the government, right? It feeds, it consumes, it serves itself. It might use words like fairness, justice, and equality, but rarely does government deliver on any promises. They're they're believing the, 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 the PR. Samuel tells the Jews everything we know. Given a man, unlimited power will be good for him and bad for everyone else. It's not rocket science. Given a tribe, unlimited authority will be good for them and bad for everyone else. Given a class of people, unlimited power will be great for them, but everyone else will suffer. So, Samuel warns them that life under a king will be a pattern of surrender. It may start out well with, with limitations, but over time, that obese patient will want more syrup on their pancakes. I don't know, whatever metaphor you want. So, notice what Samuel warns them in particular. In verses 11 and 12, he warns them of constant violence. Look at the language. He said, There will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. Where was the army of Israel in the days of Gideon? Not much of one. Saul had one. Didn't take long didn't take long. He will take your sons. He will take your sons. When General, we really could say President, we should say President uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, also a general, announced uh, he was running for office, the media portrayed him as a danger because he must be a warmonger. He's a general. Military people like war. They make their living out of war. Strikingly, however, when elected, he, it was his experience in war that made him want to avoid war. It could hardly be said, one of the more peaceful presidents, I know there was significant conflict during his time, but compared to some, and he, he was very concerned with it. His farewell address is most notable. In it, his most memorable line was he warned the American people about what he called a military-industrial complex. That is, an industry that supplies the weapons uh, wants war for its own sake. Because if the military has a stockpile of weapons it ain't using, it doesn't need more weapons. The war department wants conflict. Otherwise, why do you need a war department? This is a vicious cycle. And 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 Eisenhower became concerned with this. So that phrase military-industrial complex was became quite quite striking, giving his own background as a general, as the general really of World War II. Elect a king, Samuel Warns. He will draft your sons in unnecessary conflicts. Read the story of the first two kings of Israel. How much blood is shed? And why? How many lives are lost? Most notable is probably how David responds to Bathsheba. Remember what he did? I want this guy, the son of a Hittite, to die. Put him in the front of the line. Knowing that he will die because they're, they're, they're attacking a wall and they're in danger. And it hadn't worked before, why not try it again? Knowing that he will die. If men cannot get along with their neighbor, nations will not be able to get along with Nations. How many lives have been lost over centuries due to vanity and pride? It's incredible. Even now, right now, perhaps the number one story in the world is that. second thing Samuel warns them is harm to the family. This is an interesting phrase that that, that really I I spent some time. I'm not sure I've quite figured it out. Maybe you have some answers here. Notice that in verse 11, um, he will take your sons. In verse 13, he will take your daughters. So already what we see is is how the king will affect your family. He's not drafting his sons for war. His sons will lead the battle from behind. Your sons will be in the front line. He's not drafting his daughters to do these tasks. He's going to draft your daughters to do these tasks. So right away, Samuel was saying, this life you've got used to of raising sons and daughters and enjoying your, your local community and, and you've gotten to a pattern of life that's lasted for generations now, that is about to change abruptly because the king wants your sons and he wants your daughters. And he says the daughters will do three things. Perfumers, this word is only used here in the, in, in the Old Testament. Cooks, the word is only used here. I think, I think there's another version of it, but this precise word only used here. And bakers. Not a very common word. Now, difficult to determine exactly what he's describing here. I do think it's clear the king will solicit help and helpers to serve him. He needs cooks and other servants. And these servants will be taken from where? The home. The home. Someone has to cook the king's food. Someone has to build the palace. Someone has to run the books Someone has to be an advisor. Someone has to take care of his kids. Someone has to do these things. He will take for himself, and you will be robbed of sons and daughters. Again, the priority of the government will be to serve itself, and this will have adverse effects on the nuclear family. If only I can think of a modern nation who, who the nuclear family is under duress. Thirdly, Samuel warns of draconian taxes. Notice the language in, in verse, uh, starting in verse 14. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and, uh, and your of your vineyards and give it to his officers, to his servants. By the way, those are your sons and daughters, these officers and everything else. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to, to, to work. Benjamin Franklin once famously wrote in a letter, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. And it is incredible, and I'm old enough now, I've lived through enough, particularly since 9-11, to see how we will surrender to feel righteous, to feel safe, and to feel happy. It's incredible what we will give up. Samuel warns that the king will not only take your sons and your daughters for himself, but he will take your property. You saw that in verse 14, right? He'll take the best of your fields property. The most famous story of that is, of course, Ahab, or really Jezebel, taking uh, Naaman's property for himself. So you not only take property intact, he will take your livelihood, verse 15. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards. Well, why is the farmer raising grain and vineyards? He's got to feed his family, but his family's been robbed and now his his, uh, livelihood has been robbed. By the way, notice the percentage used there. What percentage of vineyard and grain is he going to take? A tenth. Where was that tenth supposed to go? Not to the king. It's not an accident that detail is there he will also take your wealth verse 16 he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and all your donkeys upon them those are all very expensive and they contribute to your vineyards and your grains but he'll take those why he's he's got his own vineyards he's got to raise his own grains now this is not to suggest that taxes are inherently evil but to warn the reader that when sinful people rule over sinful people, righteousness and peace are rarely the results. Another reason why I think God gives in to the people, or listens to their voice, we could say. Not only is this a constant pattern of their character, not only are they just fools, and there's nothing Samuel says here that isn't new or unique, despite the form of government. But there's another reason here. They are already under judgments. Look at verse 18. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. The Lord ain't going to answer you on that day. When we think about the judgment of God, we usually think of fire, brimstone, earthquakes, the cool stuff, right? Right? And certainly that is part of it. You, you can't read the major and the minor prophets and speak of the day of the Lord without seeing talk of earthquakes and stuff. That's why when the earthquake and the, happened and the eclipse of the sun happened at the cross, people interpret that as a sign of judgment. And we should interpret that as a sign of judgment upon the sins of the world, right? We, we, we understand these things. You turn to Revelation, you see a lot of fire, brimstone, and earthquakes, meteor showers, and, and an upending up of the cosmic, uh, in, in the sky, and everything else, right? But that is true, but that's not always how the judgment of God works, Often, the judgment of God comes in the form of God tolerating what he knows will harm us. I remember years ago, really, when we first moved here, and our first winter here, we were at that stage where I thought, the kids are old enough, they can start making some decisions for themselves. You know, three and six, that's clearly old enough. And especially when it came to coats you wear outside on a cold winter day. It seems to me that even for a young child to know, cold weather requires warm coats. And so my approach to parenting is they'll figure it out. They'll walk outside and they'll say, I need a thicker coat. And if they do not say, I need a thicker coat, they will eventually figure out, I should have got a warmer coat. Next time they'll get a warmer coat. That's the way dads work. That's the way my father certainly worked, right? Right. There's a great picture I have of, of my daughter. I don't know why this came to mind. I, 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 th- and I put it on Facebook. It said, she's wearing her brother's clothes. I was in a hurry. Now, there's a three-year gap. And she, she, she could barely sit up, you know, and, and sleeves are way too long. Her, 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 I, I doubt she even put britches on her. And, you know, just leave her in diaper. And she's just, you know, you know just, it's a great picture. But I was in a hurry. The clothes were laying there. Boom. Right. You know, we'll, you know, boom goes the night invite. Um, that's the way dads might do it. My wife, on the other hand, inspect the children, right? We have a wind velocity going at, you know, such and such. It is a, a cold shield, right? She, she's got all the details. That requires these three coats. right? And we're going to, right, right? Why? Why? why Because she, she wants to make sure they're, 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 they're safe, they're warm. They're not going to get a code or all that. I'm perfectly fine with them getting a code. They'll learn the hard way. And sometimes you've got to learn the hard way. Well, there are times when God is very proactive in discipline. You know better than this. There are other times when we simply have to learn the hard way. And so what God does is he hands us over to foolishness and base desires. The best example in the Bible does come from Romans 1, where that phrase, God gave them over, is used three times. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse twenty six, for this for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Later he, he adds, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to their debased mind. You see the pattern? This is judgments we all know these things that paul describes here in fact if you read verse 29 to 31 he gives a very long vice list of all kinds of things and we look in that list we say a life lived with those things at the center will be a miserable life where people will be harmed and abused and hurt we know these things yet we are given over as an act of judgment it says if it is foolishness you want it is foolishness you will be giving and that is itself an act of judgment One of the things, questions I got a lot whenever the coronavirus hit was this question right here Is this evidence of God's judgments? And every preacher was asked that question. And I would often give essentially the same answer. It's a neat point. We were already under the judgment of God. You add virus on top of it, what's changed? We are wealthy. And yet we suffer under incredible debt because we want more and spend faster. We search for love and wonder why sex isn't satisfying us. We punish the righteous and wonder why we are wicked. We corrupt children and wonder why we are messes. We ignore God's will and wonder why we are such fools. Such fools. I was going to save this for a later sermon when we get into Proverbs in a few weeks, but... I was watching an interview with someone who, is, um, who who detransitions. Is that the term? Biological female who the internet told her she was male, and then decided to go back. She was on testosterone for 18 months, high doses. She got Planned Parenthood testosterone, and then in an interview she, they asked, "So, what, what was your life like on testosterone?" And this was this was this was incredible for me to watch, right? Because I'm a dude. I have testosterone. I don't know if you know how biology works. We're not biologists, so forgive me. But 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 uh, she goes, well, two things really stuck out to me. One is my drive went through the roof. And it wasn't just I had a drive. I was, I was a teenager. I already had a drive. It just went through the roof. And I was doing dangerous things, putting myself in dangerous situations. I could not control my lusts. And the other thing was is, is before testosterone, I I had emotions. That's why I was asking myself these questions. But what I found was when these emotions would come, it would usually uh, show up in a certain way. But I realized my fuse was short and I would respond with anger and rage. I thought, can I tell you why that is? It's what testosterone does. You want to know why men struggle with self-control? That's a big part of it. You want to know why men can easily go from asleep to angry? It's a big part of it. It's common sense. Why is it that I'm the one sitting here thinking, duh, I just don't understand why why my daughter has changed. We've put her on these medicines and all that sort of stuff. Well, at the end of the day, Samuel tells Israel that if they choose for themselves a king, They are choosing for themselves a return to slavery. Notice, he will take from you. He will enlist you. He will make you go to war. He will make you do this. He'll take your daughters and put them to work. What does that sound like to you? Slavery. He'll take your property. He'll take your sons, your daughters, your livelihood, and they will be his subject. What does that remind you of in the Bible? It's Egypt. Isn't that what God said? Well, they've been like this ever since Egypt, and they never left. The geography changed, but the hearts haven't. They were slaves in the wilderness when they demanded food and water. And they built for themselves a golden calf from gold that I had given them. And now they want the same thing and they will get the same results. Read the story of David and Solomon. They will have slaves and they will have forced labor and they will have wars and they are back into Egypt again. You will cry out. That language is so important in verse 18. You will cry out. That is the same language that Israel used In Egypt, they cried out to the Lord, liberate us. And he did. And generations later, having forgotten the redeeming work of God, they were crying out, not for freedom, but slavery. Well, despite Samuel's warning, the people choose for themselves foolishness and slavery. And that leads finally to the change in verses 19 to 22. The reasons are quite clear. First of all, similarity. This motivation is full of rejection of their calling to be light to the nations. They rather want to be like all the nations. They're called to be a peculiar people. I don't, I don't know if I put that up there. I don't think Exodus 19:6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and holy nations. We looked at that a few weeks ago. They are abandoning that call to be like the nations. So instead of being a light to the nations, the nations are being a light to Israel. Secondly, structure. Remember, they still want judges, but now a system of government that they can understand and control. The judges were erratic, but there was no authoritative rule of law, and a king will change it, and a king will change that. You realize it wasn't until modern times, if I can use that language, the idea that the king is subject to the law was even commonplace it was always believed the king was above the law finally they wanted security again notice the language verse 20 we also that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us there's your structure and go out before us and fight our battles that language should ring in your ears when you hear that it should stick out to you has israel fought battles since egypt yeah they fought a lot of battles Did they win some of those battles? Yeah. Who led them? Who ultimately led them? Remember, their saying is we need someone to lead us into battle. So notice there, they're already talking about war that their sons will be drafted into. Who will lead Israel into battle? Well, it was supposed to be the Lord. Exodus 23, 23, when my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hittites and the Jebusites, I will blot them out. I'll go before you. And where's, where's Moses going to be? On top of a hill. Deuteronomy 9, know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them for you. Likewise, Judges 4.14, And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Can't see Samson saying something like that, can you? Can't see Ahab saying something like that. When you take your eyes off of God, you will always turn to lesser saviors. So the people have spoken, And Samuel gives them what they want. And just like that, they move from a strict theocracy to a religious monarchy. I was reading through this story and and I thought there's there's something weird about this story. Maybe it's sticking out to you. And hopefully after seven years, you you, you see a passage and then you realize it fits within a a biblical framework, a a broad meta-narrative that we're trying to do this year in our book. There's real irony here. Israel wanted a king, and they got one. That's the story, isn't it? That's really going to dominate the rest of the story until until the last king has his eyes gouged out and sent off to Babylon, the last son of David. These kings turn out to be petty, prideful, idolatrous, and wicked. Later, Israel find themselves without a king. And the people cried out for one. And one was given to her. This king was pure, selfless, and love. And they rejected him. I think this is demonstrated in John chapter 19. Pilate wrote in description to put it on the cross this is why we we think it is a a T cross that is your your, your typical one like like the one behind the screen here And then because the sign is above his head usually if it's a towel cross like a a capital T the sign will be around the neck this one was nailed above his head according to all four gospels and it says Jesus of Nazareth king of the Jews in fact didn't Pilate say in John's gospel behold here's your king you wanted a king here's your king he talks about a kingdom. He claims to be a king. He's welcomed people as citizens into his kingdom. See, you're king. What did the people do? They rejected him. So much so that in the story, the chief priests, the Jews said to the Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather he claimed to be the king of the Jews. It's amazing, isn't it? They wanted a king. He was petty, wicked, and idolatrous. And they loved him. And then they cried out for a king again. He was gracious and kind and love and a redeemer. And they rejected him. Samuel warned Israel that this king would take. The good news of the gospel is that we are given a king who gives. If only we would receive him as king. Let's pray.